0: And welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights, and strategic inputs from around the globe.
1: Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today's Monday, the 8th of January 2024. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer and welcome to this week's The Week in Markets podcast. What's most notable in financial markets is that the 10-year Treasury yield is back above 4%. Admittedly, it was only three weeks ago that the 10-year yield was also above 4%, and that wasn't very long ago. Still, most people thought rates were on the downtrend, or at least flat. Going up again is not what the market wanted or expected to see. Up until Friday, we had December data that was a little warmer than expected, but not dramatically warmer, but then on Friday, What happened that caught the market off guard was the December non-farm payrolls came in at 216,000 versus 175,000 new jobs expected. And if we add those 216,000 new jobs to the other 11 months of last year, we get 2.7 million jobs that were added to the economy last year. Excluding the pandemic rebound, That's the third highest reading since the year 2000. So the idea is, if the economy is doing this well, why does the Fed need to cut rates? But actually, assuming the economy doesn't go back into a recession and grows around 2% per year, and inflation's about 2% per year over the longer term, then the 10-year yield probably shouldn't be a lot lower than 4% anyway. And we shouldn't be too surprised to see yields rising and prices falling when we remember what happened to the bond market in the last two months of last year. The Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Bond Index that measures investment-grade bonds from treasuries to corporates to mortgage-backed securities returned 8.5% in those two months alone, higher than its average yearly return of 6.7%, and they were the best two months since 1982. So it's not surprising it fell 1.1% in the first week of 2024. As for the stock market, the S&P 500 also fell last week by 1.7%. But that also comes after a nine-week positive streak when it went up 16%. Once again, a lot more than the yearly average return for the S&P, which is 9.5%. What's the way forward? Well, there's good news and bad. The good news is that, as I said, the last nine weeks of the year were all up for the S&P. That's a rare event. It only happened nine times in the last 70 years. And now there are 10 times. The return one year later, after a streak of nine up weeks in a row, for those nine times that happened before, was positive in seven. And the average return, including the two times that were down, was 8.2% 12 months later. I guess the idea is that a streak of nine up weeks in a row is a signal of strong momentum. So that's the good news. The bad news is that, as I said, the S&P was down in its first week of trading. Since 1983, there were 23 years when the first week was an up week. And it went on to rise, on average, another 16% for the remainder of the year. There were only four of those 23 that had a negative return. But for the 18 years since 1983, when the first week was down, the remainder of the year rose just 3.5% on average, and 6 of the 18 were down in the remainder of the year. But in defense of the first weeks that were down, what hurts the average is 2008, the global financial crisis, when the S&P fell 38%. If you took that out, the average remainder of the year return for the years that had a first week that was down was still quite a reasonable 6.2%. And there were several years that had first weeks that were down, but the rest of the year was really good. Like in 1985, 1991, 1997, they were all down in the first week of trading, but they had a 29% return in the rest of the year. 2020 was down in the first week of trading, it had a 16% return in the rest of the year. 2024 was also down in the first week of trading, It had an 11% return in the remainder of the year. So let's not get too down on the fact that the first week was down. There's something else to say about this year that makes it a little unique. It's an election year. In the last 24 election years, going back to the year 1928, the S&P usually falls in the beginning of January, bounces in the middle, falls again, and closes a tiny bit positive at the end of the month. And if we look back at the average returns every month in those election years, January is essentially flat, as I said, and then not much happens until the middle of the year when the summer is strong, and then there are also two good months at the end of the year. The total return is on average 7.9% in election years, which is slightly less than the 9.5% average return for the S&P since 1928, but nothing to complain about. Usually in election years, the stock market wants the incumbent to win because there's a comfort factor in knowing nothing's going to change. And this time, there's the additional stress of remembering the chaos of the Trump administration. But the fact is, if Trump is allowed to run, and Biden is on the Democrat ticket, then Trump is almost sure to win. Biden's approval rating is low at 38%. And that's strange because unemployment is very low. It's just 3.7%. The long-term average is 5.7%. The reason he's not popular is, as my father recently told me, Biden is too old to be president. And by the way, my father is 83 years old. In 1952, when Harry Truman decided not to run again, it was because he thought he was physically no longer up to the job. He was 68 years old at the time. When Ronald Reagan left office, he was 77 years old, and we know in retrospect that he had Alzheimer's. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of person would run again when they're 81 years old? People are asking themselves that question, including two groups that have been the backbones of the Democrat base and are the reason Biden was elected in 2020, young people and Hispanics. In the first poll of 2024, done by Suffolk University and USA Today, among people aged 18 to 34, 41% strongly disapproved of the job Joe Biden is doing as president. And among Hispanics, 40%, strongly disapprove. The Democrats keep saying the world will end if Trump gets elected, but they're not willing to switch their candidate when the polls show so obviously that with Biden on the ticket, they're heading for a loss. They could pretty much grab anyone that would beat Trump. For example, Andy Bashir, the former governor of Kentucky, or Andy Levin, the former Michigan congressman. On top of that, there's a feeling that under-Biden, geopolitics are taking a dangerous turn for the worse. Starting with the Middle East. Freight rates have risen sharply since December because over two dozen container and cargo ships have been attacked in the Red Sea by Iranian-backed Yemenis. So Maersk and others are no longer going through the Suez Canal. They're going around South Africa instead. That's very bad for supply chain logistics. And it's clearly inflationary. But the big risk is if the oil flow changes. We were just getting used to inflation coming off and everybody's talking about the Fed cutting rates. A big part of the decline in inflation is energy prices. What happens if some of the flow out of the Middle East is cut off or slows down and the oil price goes up? Admittedly, cutting rates isn't going to help bring the oil price down, but it's kind of hard to cut rates when the oil price is going up. And then, Somebody seems to be trying to expand the conflict in the Middle East. First, there was the killing of top Hamas leaders in Beirut, and then the bombing on General Soleimani's death anniversary in Iran. A senior commander of an Iranian-backed group was killed by a drone attack in Baghdad. And beyond the Middle East, there's Venezuela threatening to invade Guyana, North Korea firing artillery near South Korea's border. All told, there are 25 armed conflicts in the world. How much can the U.S. do? If all of this happens at once, not to mention Taiwan with its elections on Saturday, it's almost like they're all talking to each other and trying to extend the U.S. to send a message, look how many ways we can stretch you and we haven't even started yet. And of course, it increases the chance of Trump winning. Trump has been saying, I am the one who can prevent World War III. And given how he seems to get along with strongmen, he might be right. Because Would Kim Jong-un have done this with Trump as president? A lot of people would say no. Then, just rounding things off, here's something else that's supportive of the market. The Fed's December minutes that were released last week and Dallas Fed President Lori Logan over the weekend both said it's time to start talking about ending quantitative easing. Right now, the Fed is allowing $60 billion in treasuries and $35 billion in mortgage-backed securities to mature each month. As they do, it takes liquidity out of the system. If the Fed ends quantitative tightening, that means it would be reinvesting those matured securities back into those markets instead. So the market hadn't thought the Fed would adjust its quantitative tightening until the end of this year. Now, after these hints, people are thinking maybe it happens in the summer instead. Something else that's nice to see to end this podcast in our part of the world was an article by Bloomberg analysts on Friday. Given the way Chinese stocks have underperformed, they're now so cheap. Their earnings yield—that's the price-earnings ratio flipped upside down—is 5.7 percentage points above the government bond yield. Just to put that in perspective, the S&P's earnings yield is 4%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is also 4%. But in China, the earnings yield is 8.2%, and the government bond yield is 2.5%. So that's a 5.7% spread which is extraordinary. It's only been above 5.5% five times in the last 20 years. If we look at what happened to the stock market after each of those times, 12 months later, it was up every time, and the average return was 57%. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now, and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye.
0: You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast Constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com/legal/podcasts for further important legal information.